and welcome to Frock Flicks, the historical costume movie and TV podcast and blog and stuff like that. I'm your host, Tristan L. Bass, and I'm here with the original Broadway recording cast of Sarah Lorraine, Kendra Van Cleave. And it's been a while since we've had a podcast, so we thought we'd start off a little bit with you know, what we're up to, what we are watching in this craziest of end times timelines. Uh, I know uh, we're, we're all watching a lot of things. Not all of them are uh, frock flicks, um, but we are definitely streaming a shit ton of things. Uh, I've been watching a lot of stuff. I've been watching a huge spate of World War II movies and documentaries. I can't totally explain it, but I do have a blog post uh, that will have already come out by the time we post this. That'll be a wrap-up of all of those. Um, I think it's because it's somebody else's problem, and it's a problem that's already been resolved. It's in the past. It's happened. I know how it ended versus our current pandemic, where it's all so many unknowns. So there was that uh, for a while. Then I went on a Silicon Valley, uh, which is a modern comedy TV show binge. So that's not exciting to talk about. Um, And then I started watching Belgravia, which was actually surprisingly good. I thought it was going to be kind of a little sort of chintzy, twee, sort of Jane Austen-y knockoff. But it's actually... Um, it's Julian Fellows who did Downton Abbey, so I suppose I should have expected quality, but um, I'm definitely enjoying the story. The costumes, on the other hand, it's set primarily in the 1840s, which, as we know, is the death of fashion. So there is a whole lot of, like, coal scuttle bonnets and crocheted day gloves and day caps. Oh, day caps. They're so bitty. Ah. Uh, Yeah, so the costumes are well done. They're just not my era. And then I just started watching this week Mrs. America on Hulu, which is about Phyllis Schlafly and starring Kate Blanchett. And I so highly recommend it. It's so good. It's actually, if you watch the previews, it seems like it's really about Schlafly mostly, but it's actually equally about all of the feminists like Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. Um, and it's really uh, well done. It's it's an interesting, entertaining look. And the soundtrack is so good. It's all this great funk. So Mrs. America, too recent to review for the blog, but totally check it out. And I admit, I, for, I was one of those people that grew up hating the 70s. And now I'm like, Rose Byrne as Gloria Steinem is all my fashion goals. <laughs> I want to wear boots and put my hair in my face. I will note that um, Tom and Lorenzo, the blog, Tom and Lorenzo, um, are, are doing or have done, I think they've done most of the pieces already, um, a, a costume fashion analysis of the major characters in that. Um, mm. So if you are interested in that uh, and, and in somebody's fashion gag, please. I lived through that. I don't want to look at it again. Um, deep di- They do a deep dive on each each character uh, and, and the kind of changes, not really changes, but, you know, and how accurate it is and how, what it reflects about their personalities and all that sort of shit. Um, and it's very good. They did the Mad Men uh, analysis for 100 million years. Um, and so they're very good at mid-century plus fashion. Um, before that, they suck. But 
no lie, uh, no tea, no shade, but truth. Uh, so yeah, if you if that's your jam, foot clothing wise, go for it there. It's it's great. So um, what I've been watching lately uh, has been kind of a lot of like stuff that's kind of comfort food, comfort movies. <laughs> and I know we've done posts on this a couple of times about things that we retreat to when we, you know, need a little bit of like emotional security and, um, you know, things that aren't that challenging, uh, plot wise, but are beautiful and that sort of stuff. So I <laughs> immediately had to start watching um, Peaky Blinders. Uh, which I haven't watched before, <laughs> but my boyfriend has, and he was, he's a big fan of it, and it's very good. Um, I have a lot of problems with the women's hair in it, uh, but we will, of course, be doing a fuller post on that later because I don't watch anything with costumes unless it's for this blog. Uh, <laughs> I have other thoughts that will come out later. Um, I've also been watching, uh, re-watching, like I said, kind of re-watching the comfort food stuff. I've been re-watching like the, uh, the Power and the Passion of Charles II, um, which I love. It's one of my favorite, or it's called The Last King. I think the American version is called The Last King. Yeah, who knows? Anyway, it's fabulous. We've done it on the blog before. Uh, and the other is uh, Versailles. I'm like, kind of dragging my boyfriend in. He wants to watch Peaky Blinders. Well, we got to watch an episode of Versailles. <laughs> so I actually haven't finished the series yet. I've only got up to like, I think season three and there's four seasons or is it three seasons and I only went up to season two, whatever it is. I saw all the seasons except for the very last one. Um, but to talk about, since Kendra brought up 1970s stuff and stuff that we will never cover on the blog because it happens post 1969, I completely, completely relate to Kendra's, oh my God, I want to dress like it's the 1970s. Because <laughs> I've been watching this really amazing um, mini series or, or series on, I think it's on Netflix. I need to double check that, but it's called The Get Down. And it's all about the creation or the genesis of hip hop in New York in like the early 70s. And, and the costumes are fabulous. And all I wanted to do after the first episode was run around in a glitter lame slinky dress and like listen to ABBA, you know? <laughs> so completely, completely relate to that right now. But, but Tristan will literally kill us if we ever tried to do anything from the 1970s. Yeah, that's a fact. Cool. Well, I've been um, watching a lot of comfort uh, TV as well. Um, and as blog readers, especially our Patreon um, subscribers might know, uh, one of my biggies is MASH. I wrote an in-depth uh, Patreon post about that at the beginning of the year because um, it's it's funny. It's, it's serious at times. I, I can quote most every episode from front to back. Um, and um, I just, you know, yeah, so I, I so that's always my go-to to come back to that. Um, and weirdly also, as you might know from the blog, um, at first I, you know, had dissed call, call the midwife as boring, trite, um, too recent, and you know, it's all about babies, boring, snooze. Well, then last year when I was going through a rough patch, you know, I found it because it's it's on um, PBS, you know, Sunday nights, Masterpiece, you know, just kind of it rolled, you know, I rolled into it TV wise because Sunday nights just suck, you know, Sunday night dread and all that. And um, and it was kind of comforting and kind of interesting. And I realized these are, you know, these are kind of like 
interesting female focused stories and all the women have agency and they're and they also focus on these kind of fascinating little bits of medical history and um, and they're diverse stories and there's different class levels and it's it's actually got a lot more going than you realize you know we just think oh it's just midwives and eh, babies blah. um and so of course i started watching it last year and then the new season started up and then i started going back on netflix because they have all 800 years the the, the show and so I started not going really chronologically, but I'm just kind of picking and choosing, like, hey, I watch a random episode. And so I found things like, there's a queer storyline with these midwives, and then the backstory of how certain characters got together, or some, you know, like, strange tragedy of, you know, such and such character or something. And, and it's just, you know, it's kind of fascinating. And it is very comforting because they wrap things up in a tidy bow at the end of every episode as that kind of serial uh, show does. So that's been kind of nice. Um, and then the other thing that I watch endlessly is just documentaries. I'm a total documentary slut and I'm thinking about writing another post. I know we have a few posts on the blog um, about documentaries, things like Lucy, Lucy Worsley, um, Supersizers, the House series, but there's so many of them on all the streaming services. Um, and plus my other favorite kind of documentaries, just like the, the PBS stuff, um, like American Experience or um, Ken Burns, or just you know, like, seriously, any documentary, any just history documentary, you know, it's just kind of like Kendra was talking about, it's things that are over and whatever it was, they solved it, it's done, it's finished. <laughs> Cause I watched something about the, 1918 uh, flu pandemic and okay, it was a pandemic, but it's done now. <laughs> so um, those are some of the things that we've been going and you know, when we have like an open thread uh, on the blog, it's been um, interesting to see what you're all watching because uh, it's we've all we're all dealing with this in our own special ways. <laughs> Something else to consider to watch currently right now is that uh, the Globe Theater and the Metropolitan Opera uh, and many other of these major um, theatrical and opera uh, uh, institutions are releasing um, recordings of their stage productions on, you know, actually, I think I've seen them on like Amazon Prime or Netflix, you know, they come up repeatedly. Um, I see them as advertisements on Facebook and everything. and so. Keep an eye out for that because now that it's on quote unquote TV, that's kind of under our purview. So I think, you know, that's probably something that we're going to start looking at going forward as well is to take advantage of all these things. And Tristan was just telling us about how a mutual friend of ours had seen some of these productions and had a lot of good things to say about it. Yeah, specifically the uh, Frankenstein, which I believe is the Globe Theater. There's actually two versions out. And I, it might be on YouTube, I'm not positive. Uh, it might be just on the Globe's website itself. Um, but one of them stars uh, Johnny Lee Miller um, as the monster. Um, and one of them stars Benedict Cumberbatch. And um, apparently Cumberbatch is much better, but, it's all, but they're both there and you can watch both of them. So, um, you know, and that's just, again, one of many opportunities. That's, that's kind of the like tiniest, tiniest, tiniest of silver linings to this whole horrible thing is that there is a new opportunity for media that, you know, we 
many people didn't have access to before. So, well, take advantage of it while you can. Okay, so now the movie that we're going to talk about today is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which premiered in 2019 in France at the Cannes Film Festival, Cannes Film Festival, excuse me, uh, at great acclaim, and then was released um, earlier uh, in 2020 in the United States and is currently streaming on Hulu. Uh, it is in French with uh, subtitles. It was um, written and directed by Celine, I'm gonna screw this up, Shyam, Shyam Lama? Yeah, whatever, I'm terrible at this. Um, and it is uh, primarily, it is, it's very much a female made film and a female focused film. Uh, there are about four characters in the film. They're all women. Uh, there are, uh, there is, the film starts when a um, painter, Marianne, comes to a small island in um, off of the coast of Brittany, and it's set in the late 18th century. No particular year is mentioned. Um, According and, to the description on IMDb, it says 1770, but I don't know where they got that. All right, maybe Wikipedia. Okay, maybe Wikipedia. I read it in a book with pictures. It's very vague. In fact, we're gonna to get to the timeline being vague uh, when we talk about the costume specifically. Um, so, so Marianne is the painter who comes to this island to paint a portrait of a young lady, Eloise. Um, she was commissioned by the, the young lady's mother. And then the other character she finds there is um, the maid, Sophie. That's it. <laughs> um, the costume designer is, um, Let's butcher her name as well, uh, Dorothy Giard. Um, they're all of them, their resumes are just French films. Um, and they don't, you know, they don't have uh, much. I, I think one of the actresses, the one actress who plays Eloise, was in uh, what was that film? Kendra uh, briefly, I think she reviewed it, uh, One King, One, one Nation, One King. Um, but other than that, not big names uh, amongst U.S. Uh, audiences. So that's the setup. And um, it's about two hours long. It's actually a fairly long film, considering that it's a fairly tight focus of um, story and characters and plot. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well written. I think the fact that it's just a few characters um, and that they're all women. It felt like one of the films that I've seen, um, sorry. It felt more realistic to the period than many films set in that era are. Um, and I think it helps that, in, that you know, the, their world is very small. It's just the three of them. And you watch this process of them getting to know each other and sort of relaxing. You know, initially the servant is separate and then over time it gets to the point where they're playing cards with the servant. But it's all it's all very um, believable in a period context. And then, of course, there is the romantic part of things 
um, which I found very touching, particularly because I like a good doomed romance. Um, so I was most moved by, you know, the, the parts where things weren't working out quite so well. Um, <laughs> I do have some comments about the, um, the, the random drug, um, wiping on armpit hair and then demonstrative sex, euphemism, whatever. Um, but, uh, other than that, I thought the storyline was, um, really good and touching and well-written and unbelievable and all of those things. So I, <laughs> I am the queen of ADHD and I started this movie with a lot of trepidation because I knew as a quote unquote artsy French film, it was going to be slow and meandering and plotting. <laughs> uh, but what surprised me about it was that it was all of those things, but it was really engaging as well. I felt drawn in by the visuals. Um, I thought that the cinematography was phenomenal. Uh, it really aided in kind of drawing my attention, where my attention would have just immediately like been, fuck it, I'm out. Uh, this is taking too long. <laughs> I was hooked in by just the beautiful cinematography, the beautiful way that it was shot. Uh, the artistic value of like every every scene was just conscientiously plotted out to the nth degree with the lighting and the set dressing and the actor and all of these things worked very well. And so it did actually hold my attention. Um, I will have to say that there were a lot of moments where I was just kind of like, just get to the sex just get to the sex <laughs> can they just fuck and get it over with uh and sexual tension aside i i honestly didn't see you know it's weird in retrospect i don't think i felt so much sexual tension as that this was just you know a spiritual union kind of a thing um it was bound to happen uh one way or the other there was a lot of tension um, but I'm not sure if it was sexual in nature. Um, but I thought that by the time three quarters of the way through the film, when the two main characters finally consummate their thing, <laughs> uh, it felt just very normal, natural, like this was the conclusion of what um, the plot was going for. Now, Full confession, I actually haven't finished the last 10 minutes of the film. And I'll give you a good reason why. Because <laughs> I don't like doomed romances. <laughs> I want happy endings. And so once they consummated their love and everything was looking peachy keen, I'm like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah rewrites the story by not watching. <laughs> We lived happily ever after. Well, and it's too bad because I have comments about the costumes in the last scene, but we'll get to oh, that. Oh, God. And oh, I, damn it. And I should should point out, actually, I, I forgot when I was in capsule summary, is that it's actually framed, the, the story is framed by, um, it starts as Marianne's giving an art lesson to a number of young women. And it's the end framing is her because it's framed and she's like remembering back to this 
when she painted this story, uh, painted this picture and had this affair. And then she comes back to the present where she's at this class and she tells when she next saw um, Eloise and uh, in the present, as it were, um, and it kind of concludes um, with the their, well, their non-relationship at that point. Um, I don't know if I want to spoil it for Sarah now. I have maybe, maybe, I want to fuck it. Um, spoiling it most spoilers in history. <laughs> My ass did pucker a little bit at the final scene, partially. Again, we'll get more into the costumes. Yeah. I got what they were going for, but it felt a little heavy handed. The odds that you wouldn't actually like run around the theater and be like, hi, hi. I mean, come on, people. Who has that kind okay. of willpower? So I, the time period, I think it's appropriate because you're not going to run around. I mean, it's like it's not a it's not an Adele concert or something. <laughs> OK, now, Jesus Christ, I need to watch this because I had gotten to like the last 10 minutes and I'm like, OK, we all know they're not going to end up together. Eloise is going to go marry the Milanese count that she's going to marry or whatever. And Marianne's going to like, you know, fuck off and do art forever and be tortured. And nothing is going to change. I didn't expect a costume change. <laughs> well, uh, there, there we go. So there we go into the costumes. Um, so speaking of the costumes, I'm going to like fire out some of what the uh, costume designer talked about. Um, there's a green dress that's a central element of the film. It's literally the only shiny costume in the majority of the film. Um, and uh, she says to British Vogue, um, the color was a very clear choice made by the director. Um, it's easy to see why. Realizes the color of life offering up connotations of nature, energy, and renewal. The dress without any embellishment in sight communicates a great deal. Um, and the lack of embellishments is also important because um, in several interviews, the costume designer goes on about, while she did a lot of research and she knows about the, um, clothing of the period. Um, she and the director wanted a very stripped down, uh, sleek, elegant, I'm using air quotes, this is all what her words, um, elegant, uh, sophisticated, a little bit modern uh, look to the costumes. So they did, she does make a point too that um, the costumes are very heavy and the dresses required a lot of fabric. So they were trying for a period effect as far as the, the how they were built, but just no trims. <laughs> I thought that the, uh, so there's, a, there's a, a portrait that is unfinished in the beginning of the film. There's been a previous artist who has been brought in to paint a portrait of Eloise and has failed because Eloise refused to sit for it. So the portrait sits in this, very blank room that uh, Marianne eventually occupies um, that shows just kind of a, a blank face, but like neck, shoulders, body of a gown. Obviously the artist was able to paint the gown, but not the person's face. So I could have sworn, and I need to go back and rewatch it and I could be talking out of my ass, but I could have sworn that that original portrait showed like ruched trim on it. If it, if it didn't, I mean, if it did, that would have been a really cool conceit where Marianne paints the 
actual dress the way it looks un unadorned, whereas the guy who's painting it beforehand, who Eloise wouldn't sit for, is painting kind of this like idealized over the top version of something that didn't exist. But that could just be my weird little imagination. All right. So I actually fired up the movie uh, in the background while we were recording this to double check on the unfinished portrait because a little while ago I said that I thought that there had been uh, more surface decoration on that gown. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, it is a little ambiguous, but it looks like there may have been a suggestion of a little bit more surface treatment on the robings, the, the like the front edges of the gown. Um, but it yeah, also could have just been an artistic interpretation about the gown itself. So ambiguousness. So I'm going to say that I it's interesting um, to hear the designer's thoughts behind sort of the stripped downness of the costumes. I assumed it was because here we are living on an isolated island off the co coast of Britannia. You know, we're not exactly in high society here. So I read it as sort of naturalistic and simplistic. And of course, notice that mom's dress it d did actually have, you know, self-fabric ruched trim on it. That was kind of the only trim um, on anything. Um, but yeah, so I just kind of read it as we, we're not living, we're not at Versailles here. We're on an island in the middle of nowhere. And then of course the painter, um, Marianne is very, I mean, she's mostly in a jacket and, you know, she needs to be a bit more practical. One thing I liked was that though we have very few characters here, I mean, we have the four characters, um, they kind of show essentially three different class levels uh, of society. You have um, Eloise and her mom are the kind of the gentry, the upper class. Uh, Marianne is a kind of working, not middling artist, um, middle class in her little jacket and are very simple. Uh, and then Sophie, the maid is, well, she's a maid and she's in the most simple class, but she's still very proper and she's, she has the cap. She's the only one with the cap. Um, and I think that was very conscious. It, it felt to me to, because she's the maid. Um, so we're gonna, you know, make that distinction. Um, and, and you could see this kind of progression between them all. Yeah, you could definitely see that in the fabrics. Um, so first of all, the maid, she's wearing like a linen um, jacket that was really beautifully embroidered. And the, the whole styling looked straight out of um, the Chocolate Girl, which I think is the portrait by Leotard. It's not quite the same, but the, the cut of, and the lines of things. Um, and then Marianne, the painter, her jacket appeared to be wool. Um, and then of course, um, the upper class, the mom and, um, Eloise are both in um, brocade, tone on tone brocades. Um, I did like that there was no back lacing to be seen. I thought the cuts of all of the dresses um, were very uh, accurate. Um, there was a lot of what we modernly call on furrow back, which is the pleated back where the very center back is cut in one piece between the bodice and skirt. Um, I liked that. Um, I did not see obviously any zippers or grommets or anything like that. Mom was wearing side hoops, which is a little dated, but then that's the idea, of course, often is to show the older generation being a little out of fashion. Um, and her hair was the only um, fashionable uh, hairstyle, and we'll get more into hair and all that. But anyway, so definite class differences between those three rings. And also, 
you had the ladies at the bonfire night who were very obviously like the village ladies and and even a bit rougher than Sophie the maid. And and even Sophie though wore proper stays. We did, we did see that at one point when she was undressed. So they were all in stays. Um, was no, you know, no slacking on that count. Although I have a question when Eloise was posing in the green dress, which I actually thought was really pretty. And I kept trying to decide if it was a silk or maybe like a wool cotton silk blend. I don't know. It just, I thought it was a really pretty color. It had a really nice texture to it. It didn't just look like a straight silk satin. And I'm not saying it looks synthetic, but anyway, I'd be interested to know what it was. But when she was posing, there would be these kind of horizontal um, lines, sort of dense underneath the stomacher, about four of them spaced out. And I kept trying to figure out what that was coming from. And especially when you saw her corset, it wasn't like there were bone lines or anything that would indicate that. So I was trying to figure out where those those dents came from because it was clearly something underneath. Sarah, did you figure that out? I actually, I thought that it wasn't that. I thought it was because it was hooks and eyes on the stomacher and it was pulling the, the tension on the hooks and eyes between the stomacher and the gown was creating those stress lines at all the points the hooks and eyes were. That was my theory. That is actually a very good theory and more likely in the period they would have pinned or basted the stomacher into place, which would have distributed the tension along the whole line. But if you just had four spots where there were attachment points, that would explain it. Thank you. Because I looked at that though through the whole movie. <laughs> it <knows> it all. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's always funny what everybody notices. Another thing I liked was that... Um, I often have a problem with films, French films in particular, when they're showing France, when they put women in these very Provençal capes, which you see a lot of that are, it's a cotton chintz, and then it will have this very wide, flat band of ruching on it. And because I'm always looking at them going, they're, they're freezing and they're wearing cotton, that's not going to help much. But this one actually looked like it had some substance to it. Maybe it was underlined with wool. It had a lot more weight to it. And I was like, finally, a cloak that actually looks like it might keep you warm, which I think in Brittany, you kind of might want. <laughs> and, I, and I know it wasn't, I, it was filmed, you know, two, three years ago, but man, the masks felt timely. <laughs> I thought those, that was the one weird thing. It's windy out, which first of all, it wasn't. So we need to do this weird twisty turban and then cover. Like, why would you need your face covered if it's windy? I, I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because the director had this thing and, and she, she says this in an interview uh, that was actually around the time of the, the Cannes Film Festival, that she had this, she had had this kind of vision when she first wrote the story about they're going, I'm, I want the first, their first kiss to be after they have removed masks. And so she had, she invented that whole thing. It felt awkward to me. I actually kind of liked it. I, I thought the masks, again, I felt weirdly timely, right? But also I thought very fashionable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were, there were these, uh, for those who haven't seen the movie yet, they were these um, uh, kind of wrapped around with scarves like a long scarf they wrapped around their head in kind of a weird little turban configuration but the last little bit of it they just sort of pulled across the front of their face the one thing that did bug me though was that Marianne always had hers under her nose whereas Eloise always had hers over her nose I noticed that too 
<laughs> that is such a random thing to notice. What do they? Mostly, mostly because, because of the fact that we're told about how to wear masks properly right now, which is to wear them over your nose, not under. This is not proper quarantine gear. <laughs> well, there's only four people on that island, so if one of them has it, they all have it already, so it's okay. <laughs> So I have two things that I think we need to speak about slightly more in depth. One is hair and the other is actually the portraits or the drawings, the art itself. Hair first. So that I did, obviously, we all had quibbles with the hair. Mom's hair. Side note, mom is, she's the actress you love, Sarah. And I was surprised. I don't think you, you commented on that and that surprised me. But anyway, her hair was definitely more um, styled accurately. I think I got where they were going with Marianne and Eloise's hair. You know, Marianne obviously is very practical. Eloise has just come out of a convent. But if you're going to just throw your hair up simply in the era, if nothing else, you're not going to give yourself a side part, uh, which is, you know, our everyone's new, new current pet peeve. Although I kept looking and thinking, I think maybe the actress who plays Eloise, I think her hair may naturally part there. But it doesn't matter. They still would have battled that. And someone who has a center part and has given myself a side part, I know you can. Um, but just to brush it back would have been more period. And you st you also wouldn't have had a really low on the head arrangement. You would have had something higher up on the crown of the head. So I understand what they were doing. Neither of these women were, you know, again, fashionable shopping in the streets of Paris. Um, but it just wasn't a period aesthetic. But hey, at least it was up. I also felt like, hey, at least it was up. That was my, <laughs> my whole thing. <laughs> at least they made a passing effort at doing kind of an updo 18th-ish century. Uh, actually, uh, Eloise's little weird little ponytail thing that she ended up with reminded me a lot, a lot of a Fragonard sketch um, that I was obsessed with way back in the day, which it's a side profile of a young woman. It's just a little sketch of a, of a girl in, in a dress. And, uh, and she had what looks like a little ponytail. And that very much was reminiscent of it. So I was, I was kind of okay with that. Uh, but to talk about the mother for a minute, that's Valeria Galino is the uh, the, the lady who plays the mother or the actress who plays the mother. And she was, of course, in Immortal Beloved. Um, she played the frivolous young, uh, I think she was a countess, also in Immortal Beloved. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she's fabulous. In this. Wasn't she in The King's Whore? I think so, yes. I think she was also as well. Um, that was the one that just completely came up to me immediately was that she was in Immortal Beloved. Um, but now I'm looking, I'm looking at her IMDb and all I'm seeing is all these like, you know, Italian movies that I don't recognize the name of. So. <laughs> but yeah, I think she was in The King's War. And we, I also did that as a post, didn't I? Which scarred you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, she was. In 1990, she was in The King's War. That had, um, uh, what's his name in it? The Timothy Dalton. Yeah, that was a. I, I still really wish that we would podcast that one as just kind of a throwaway podcast because it is so wacky. There is so much fodder there. <laughs> a little man in a boat. I'm just saying. She actually says the words, look at that little man in a boat. I'm like, what, the clitoris? Okay. Anyway, we digress. Okay. So I was scarred by the hair in this film. 
or at least I kept, it kept distracting me. So the blonde, first off, okay. Oh my God, her roots, anyone? Holy shit. Uh, she's a blonde by Clairol. I find that so distracting. And also then when they have dark eyebrows and I'm not saying there aren't ever blondes with dark eyebrows, but it's like 5% of them. So when I and see it on screen, I think modern bleach job. And it's, it's, and it, cause, cause yes, it's, it was like thick, thick, dark, like Madonna, you know, like, and you know, Madonna bleaches. It's obvious. It's so freaking obvious. Thick, dark roots, blonde, dark, dark eye, eyebrows, dark lashes. And, um, and then the side part, the side part actually on her wasn't as bad. It's when you see it in the portrait, holy shit, God. It's just so not an 18th century aesthetic. And uh, I was actually, I was really impressed by mom's portrait, which we see at the beginning, which is very faux Turkish style, which was very popular mid 18th century. But yeah, I thought the portrait wasn't as bad as, as so many fuck ups. It wasn't that super like, not photorealistic isn't the term, but that really realistic look it was a it had a little modern touch but it wasn't as bad it didn't look like a paint by numbers special but yeah they would not if they are trying to sell this girl to her milanese husband uh they're not gonna give her you know wonky simple hello i just came out of the convent kitchen hair okay before we go off in the art rant which we're going to go off in a minute i want to go back to the hair briefly because at the very very last scene when we when we see eloise again her hair she they she's a little aged because time has passed we want to pin in that too i want to get on the timelines because it's unclear and her hair is dark then and that's when you can see that definitely she is not a natural blonde okay end of that sarah go off on art art <laughs> Uh, the final frontier. <laughs> well, I just cat. Are the voyages of Sarah and her absolute hatred of movies that try to incorporate art in them. Um, why, why, why? If we're in a period piece and we're being super authentic about the clothing and the setting and everything else, why do we have to make it look like? modern painting but with you know costumes it's just so jarring so fucking jarring and even though kendra thought that the mom's portrait was okay and i'm like yeah it's okay um the the portrait the first or the the portraits that's painted of eloise uh, that marianne does she does two of them she ruins one of them in a fit of passion um and she repaints it <laughs> and both times it's very like modern person painting a modern uh, modern portrait of a modern person it's not it's just does not read 18th century and the fact that they stuck a 18th century dress around it did not make it any better made it worse actually <laughs> Well, and I think too, I mean, granted, it's a plot point, obviously, that theoretically, the first time she paints her is more idealized. And, you know, Eloise is like, you didn't get me. And there's none of me in it. There's none of you in it, blah, blah, blah. So I could even live with 
what she came up with, except mom would not have accepted it. Mom would have said, this is bullshit. This will do nothing for me. I mean, until you get to the impression, in my opinion, as a non-art historian, until you get to the impressionists in like eight, the 1860s, nobody's doing anything fun. This is, there's no Picasso. There's no ear on your forehead. There's no like, ooh, let's make that line stronger or anything. No, they're trying to paint an idealized, realistic, image but anyway so the idea that mom would be like yep yeah, cool i'm gonna send this to milan again with this super modern hair which at least is up but still i mean it looks like she just came back from going to yoga class uh you know this is not gonna sell daughter to to potential husband in a very broad sense anything prior to the advent of the camera is very idealized and in a very like uh kind of ossified way there's a template that people used that they thought was a beautiful face. And it was very stripped down in features, did not include a lot of real characteristics of the person, uh, especially when you get, when you get um, painters like Holbein in the 16th century and you start getting uh, more realistic painters in the 18th century, uh, just to, again, Fragonard, another one, uh, and then even later in the 18th century, when you get towards the end, you have David, who are starting to really be like, no, I'm painting what I see. I'm not painting this ideal template of a face. But that template persists for hundreds of years. It gets variations, gets a little tweaks here and there as fashions change. So when you have an 18th century portrait, you want that mask-like face. You want that featureless, has eyes that are probably very prominent, uh, a very pointed chin, a very oval face, uh, not a lot of contours to it, barely any eyebrows, you know, whatever the fashionable hair was for the time would be prominent. And that's what you would see is this very stylized featured face. And every time we get an 18th century movie and the biggest one that comes to mind, the, the biggest offender is in, uh, Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, when they copy an existing portrait that's incredibly well known. <laughs> I see the silent scream from Kendra right now on the screen. It's an incredibly well known portrait, but they slap Kirsten Dunst's face on it and they make it a very modern face. And it just looks so, so wrong. So wrong. <laughs> I don't understand why movies do this. Now, with this movie in particular, uh, they do it a little bit less um, egregiously, but it's still very much a modern portrait wearing 18th century clothing. It's not so, as bad as some. I will say, yes, Marie Antoinette, Affair of the Necklace also has a total doozy. There's a, I will admit, it's one of my favorite posts that I did on the blog called Shitty Historical Portraits. And there are just some that are just, I mean, literally saying a five-year-old painted it is a compliment. I mean, my dog would have done a better job. And, and suppose, well, not supposedly, they did work with classically trained uh, painter, Helene Delmer, um, who did research and, 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 was inspired by uh, all this, you know, big name list of uh, 18th and 19th century painters, blah, blah, blah. So they did their research, all that, but then they came out with this. When, when IMDB points out this about the Marianne's brushwork is not of the late 18th century, it's a more modern style. Um, 
you know, then, whoa, IMDb points, somebody points that out on, oh, whoa, okay, yeah, good times. Sarah. Yeah, I've, I've got to just go with the fact that, um, yeah, not the worst example of a modern film with a period-esque painting in it, still not great. Um, but you know what, it, it was obviously painted by somebody who was competent and it wasn't in other films um, that we've seen like uh, Photoshop with a glaze over the canvas. <laughs> the watercolor filter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I can't shit too hard on it because clearly somebody competent uh, painted it, but at the same time, although I will say I really did enjoy the scenes where you see Marianne painting like from her perspective. I thought that that was very Bob Ross, you know, like the, you get like the calming, soothing brush on the canvas that sh 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 it was very like AMSR, whatever that's called, you know, nice to hear thing. So. Although I have to say, it kept bugging me. I'm glad they finally did the scene where she had paint on her hands because I kept thinking every time Eloise is coming in, she's going to paint on her hands. But if nothing else, wouldn't Eloise have smelled the paint? And wouldn't she, I mean, granted, obviously she was sensitive about this. I think she would smell, I mean, paint has serious, especially oil paint has serious fumes. I mean, oil paint, oil paint has an odor. It's not a really strong odor. And if you're talking like really natural, not like mass produced stuff, it's not a very strong, strong odor but it is definitely noticeable when you get close enough to somebody who's an oil painting uh you're gonna smell it if not see the remnants you can't just get rid of like all the paint in the fingernail cuticle like i yeah i found that a little bit hard to suspend my disbelief with but um i was willing to work with it <laughs> and cracked a window <laughs> light a match <laughs> Sorry, we devolved. They made me have a cocktail. Um, I have to say, so the 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 drug paste armpit hair fondling scene was the one that killed me the most. But the second one would be the painting of the abortion, which I thought the recreation of the abortion, which I thought was actually really moving. Except if I'm mid-abortion, don't ask me to fucking pose for your portrait, like for your painting. Like, can we do that after I've fully aborted? And like maybe you know recovered a little bit. I also found that I had I had like a moment where like the thing that I keep flashing back with as I've you know a couple of days now have passed since I've seen the movie. I still keep flashing back to why the ever loving fuck did Eloise make Marianne point paint that portrait uh, or draw it sketch it whatever. Um, and I the most I can come up with was that we know that Marianne likely had an abortion at some point in her previous life that she'd gotten pregnant and had an abortion it's kind of alluded to in the movie and during the abortion scene with the um the maid uh sophie uh it marianne looks away and eloise says you have to watch and you know it was kind of the thing so i think i think eloise was trying to say hey confront your past confront your demons confront all of this and embrace it but to use sophie as a prop for that like fuck you <laughs> like god awful i agree with that i do think um part of the making her watch was to engage 
with what was happening and therefore to be supportive to Sophie. Um, and I took the, the portrait, I mean, I thought the whole thing was about being real with each other. And so the portrait or the painting, I should say, of the abortion recreation was about this is what's real. And so that, again, I thought was moving. I just thought, again, she's still mid-abortion. And I was annoyed as a plot point that they never really clarified whether the abortion worked or not, because I'd like to know how the outcome goes. Well, and in some ways that reinforces the fact that the upper classes feel that the servants are just props. Hey. That is also that is also a fair point, Tristan. I, I also can see that, you know, I don't, I don't know if that was necessarily something that they wanted to bring out in the movie, but it is absolutely something that comes out in that scene where it doesn't matter. Sophie, the, the, these two women who are of a higher class standing than Sophie is basically are caring for her. And she's usually the caretaker. Sophie is usually the caretaker, but uh, in the sense that she's the, the handmaiden. And they're caring for Sophie while she's I still love they're like, are you asleep? No, get your ass up. Get back to work. You know, get up. Let's paint this picture. Like, let's do this. And she's like, okay. We want to capture this pose. It was, yeah, that was was a weird scene. It was one of the scenes where I'm like, I'm still unpacking that. And I'm not sure what I thought that they, or what they, what I think about it was what the filmmaker wanted me to think about. I got it on one level and had questions on another. The great thing about art, <laughs> it just keeps going. Um, I had a, wanted to address the con- the idea of what the hell the timeline is here, uh, because it's super not clear. I mean, there's since the, the film itself doesn't say what year it is, and then it alludes to, so we open up with uh, Marianne in her art class. And she says, oh, that happened when the, when one of the students um, points to a picture, uh, the painting that Marianne had made, which is actually of Eloise on the beach with fire, her portrait of a lady on fire. Um, and the student refers to that and says, did you make that? Yes, I painted that many years ago. So then we flash back to the many years ago. And then, the final part of the film comes forward into the back of the classroom. And then we see briefly when um, Marianne sees Eloise at the uh, symphony. So those that's the many years ago. Then also the uh, mom's portrait in the, in the house uh, is presumably of her when she's younger, perhaps before Eloise was born. But None of the time, none of the clothing changes really. So there's really no indication of how much time has passed between all of these. It's at which, you know, okay, obviously that happens all the time in costume movies because nobody cares. Nobody pays attention to that, but it bugs me. So, um, Sarah. So one of the things that also, that did also uh, uh, catch me was the fact that the, I tried to sit there and think about, well, the mom, maybe she's in her 40s, so she would have been in like her late teens to early 20s when that portrait was painted. So therefore, this is maybe a portrait that's maybe 25 years at most um, prior to what's happening contemporaneously in the, in, in the movie. Um, but yeah, it, it did irritate me that everything was just kind of, you know, 
blandly 18th century, not really sure where it lands in the, in the timeline. Um, yeah, and I kept looking for that anchor point as well. I kept wanting to, you know, find that, oh, okay, so this takes place in the 1760s or this place in the 1780s. Um, but I did keep looking at the just overall broad brushstrokes of, of the character of Marianne and thinking that it did kind of relate to Elizabeth Vigier Lebrun. Um, and I, that's where my brain immediately went because maybe because I focused a lot on her for my master's degree. <laughs> but I, I started trying to put that into the context of, you know, a female painter in the 18th century, um, where she'd be teaching in the late 18th century. So we're talking like 1780s, 1790s. So that's where my brain inserted the beginning of the film. And if you're flashing back, you know, five, 10 years or whatever it was to, that point where she meets Eloise for the first time, that would have put it in the 1770s, mid 1770s, early or late 1770s. And then another 20 years before that would have been 1750s, which would have been the mother. So that was kind of my little like mental gymnastics. Kendra. For me, I thought that the portrait of the mother with the twists, with the pearls wrapped into it, that hair that she was wearing looked very uh, 1750s, 1760s to me. I thought that mom's hair with the, the curly sort of fro and then up in a braid and back looked very 1780s. I thought all of the students that Marianne was teaching looked very sort of generically 1760s to 70s. Um, at the painting, the, the gallery reception, where, side note, I really liked Marianne's red and goat. Um, the, many of the guys looked very 17, we only saw guys, and I think there was a bit of high hair, so it made me think 1770s, and then at the opera, yeah, nothing had changed, and again, uh, I was annoyed because I felt like Eloise, granted, you're not going to wear a big skirt to the opera, you know, given that, like, the key scene was them scooching by other people, but, like, there was nothing under that skirt. It was so limp. And then it was like things were two, it was like two colors. The fabric was two colors in weird ways. Like I feel like the sleeves were a different color than the dress, like not in an 18th century aesthetic. So I was very unimpressed by whatever the hell Eloise was wearing at the, not opera, the symphony. And then what was her hair? Cause I don't remember. It, it seemed like it was fairly flat. I remember the color of my hair, but that's all. Seemed like the same thing. I just came from yoga class and I threw it up in a rubber band. I'm actually fast forwarding to the part where they're doing the gallery uh, presentation and she sees, I, I'm guessing it's a portrait of Eloise. Is that what yeah. that is? Okay. She's in a chemise a la Right. So that, yeah. argues, that will argue a 1780s, mid to late 1780s, for the end portion of the movie. So I'm, yeah, take that as, as what you want. <laughs> I think clearly the filmmakers were, we like to geek out on this. The filmmakers clearly didn't give a shit because one other thing, I liked yeah. the ghostly wedding dress that she would, the visions of Eloise Marianne would see, but it was a robe volant, which was a style that went out of fashion in the 1740s. So unless it's like we've had this dress for forever, which I'm sorry, it would be so easy to update a robe volant into a later style. Um, and maybe they were yet to do that. Um, and, it, and it worked on a plot level. That was great. It was just like, whoa, suddenly we pulled grandma's dress out of the attic. No, but they made a point of, I have a gift for you. She made, so she said, I have a gift for you, making it sound like it's new, not like I pulled some shit down from the attic for you. No, I, have a, I brought a gift because 
mom had gone off to Paris. So yes, I went to Paris and had them make this really old dress for you. Yes. It's like I, I went to Paris and I, you know, made them recreate some 1982 Esprit bubble dress. And now you're going to, well, that would actually be cool. I don't know. Give me something that wouldn't be cool. <laughs> I had them make Princess Diana's wedding gown. There you go. Yes. With big poofy sleeves and way too much chintzy lace. <laughs> yes. Yes. I did think the sheer overlayer was great for a ghostly effect and complete what the fuck for 18th century. Again, this is on the white wedding dress. Beautiful. But yeah. So I feel like just, yeah, all the costumes and, and even down to that portrait um, and the chemise um, gown was really just picked for looks. Like we just want to set this in the 18th century because that seems cool. They they were not concerned about a, a timeline through costume. They were they were going for ambiance and a general aesthetic. I mean, they got they kind of nailed it in the sense that they got that general aesthetic down. And of course, us assholes were gonna nitpick the shit out of every bit of it. But that's what we do. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, there's a part of me that's also saying. Sit back and let the art wash over you, Sarah. <laughs> don't, let it, don't let it get to you. Um, I'm going to, uh, one, one last thing actually about the story is, is yes, as we need to pick all the costume stuff. Um, as, you know, I do wonder actually, um, the why setting it particularly in the 18th century, I guess because you get to show um, women's lives in a time period that is particularly constrained. And it's a little bit, a little bit more so than the 19th century. So you, you're kind of pre a lot of um, more obvious stirrings of, you know, wider class diversions, um, you know, pre uh, Wollstonecraft even. Um, certainly, there are you know places in the 18th century where women can you know be have a few more choices and such but but here you can you can kind of narrow in these archetypes which which the the screen the director and screenwriter same person has done of here's the upper class woman who, who's going to be married off and previously her sister had been going to be married off and and how this is traumatic to her um the, the one woman with a possibility of being an independent woman and then you know servant class who it's problematic for her to do her own thing. Um, so she can, you know, show these women and show the variations of their lives and show it very distinctly and also throw it in a very isolated place and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, she can tell that story in a very particular way and she doesn't have to be too super fussed with the historical details because, you know, who knows other than us. Um, and then, and then, adding the romance as you know, I kind of sometimes I come back and forth between that because it's like I, I can definitely see the um, the attraction and the draw um, because these women are very isolated and not just geographically. I mean their um, society has given them so little <laughs> to um, so it's so a little opportunity for uh, real connection with any human being, much the less, you know, whether male, female, friend, 
lover, what have you. Um, so they find, they find somebody. Um, and that is a moment, it's a moment in time. And then the, the metaphor of, of um, Orpheus and Eurydice um, becomes how they deal with that because they realize, okay, we've had this time and do we fight against it? Or we just let, you know, do with, let society do as it will with us because there's forces stronger and all that. Um, it kind of in that, in some ways falls into the trope, uh, the, you know, lesbian love story trope of, you know, they're not, they don't die, they don't recant, but they don't get to be together either. Um, but they do get to be themselves in some way. Sarah. I mean, and that's kind of why I, when I first went into this and it sounds really horrible to say that I didn't really want to watch this because it's going to be yet another tragic lesbian love story that we're not going to see them live happily ever after. We're not going to see any sort of resolution. It's just going to be this tortured parting, which did happen. <laughs> I will say it's still worth the watch though. It's absolutely still a great film, but it was still like, can we just have one time a happy ending? Just, I mean, you know, Gentleman Jack kind of gave that to us, which was nice. I'm just thinking, uh, I kind of put off going into it because I too thought it was going to be slow. Um, but also I thought it wasn't going to be total, very believable, the romance between the two. And I thought it really was. And again, I think the isolation uh, of the location and all of that was a huge part of what made it work. But yeah, I mean, come on, just go to mom and say, I really like this Marianne chick. Can you hire, I'll, I'll marry the Milanese guy if you let her be my companion. Marianne can still paint and then we can get down when, you know, husband's busy. <laughs> Would have been so easy. It's never that easy. I was gonna say, I was gonna say that, you know, that precludes Marianne being completely okay with being the second fiddle to all of that, which, you know, you get to your, oh, another another layer of this type of movie. You you have that exploration as well, which is the, you know, hey, we could still be together, but I'm going to marry the man, and and then you know the love interest being like not cool, no. Yeah, and then she be the kept woman. And yeah. I thought that they addressed that actually in the scene where, yeah, which I liked. Yeah. So I haven't actually watched. <laughs> I'm going to finish the last ten minutes. <laughs> Fuck you too, Kendra. But uh, yeah, like I, uh, I keep having this thought. Okay, I don't know where it's going. Anyway, continue. I think so too. Um, I I think it is definitely worth watching. It is beautiful, um, more for the cinematography than the costumes per se. It's not a you know beautiful costume movie. It's a beautiful, beautifully made movie. Um, it is a tragic romance. Um, but you know, fuck it. Romance isn't happy all the time. So whether, you know, lesbian, gay, straight, whatever, you know, testify. <laughs> testify. But there's far more straight happily ever afters than there are queer happily ever afters. Testify. Oh! <laughs> uh, right. that, it's, you don't have to convince me of that. I know. Um, but it is an incredibly beautiful movie at least. And there's a lot more ugly ass straight movies. <laughs> so this is me nodding furiously in agreement. <laughs> yes. So we'll take that. Um, so uh, there we go. All righty, got another one in the can, and uh, who knows? Maybe we'll have some more soon. Woo!
I'm rooting for yeah, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Me too. I've got I'm... another idea, which I'm going to tell you later. <gasps> we are all on pins and needles. Ooh. Well, that's it. That's Frockflix. Uh, find us online at frockflix.com. Find us on Facebook at Frockflix, Instagram, Pinterest, apparently, uh, Twitter, probably other places. I don't know. Find us. Search us. Frockflix. And you can subscribe fucking Google it. (laughs) And subscribe to our Patreon because that's how we are able to put all this shit together for you. And we love every one of you crazy, wacky people who support us on Patreon or send us PayPal donations because you're the lifeblood that makes us get up every day. God damn it. Thank you. I also want to just add into this that uh, we just did a uh, Patreon-only video cast the other day. Um, So if you're subscribing to Patreon, you may get special access to us. That's right. I might do another one. We should do another one. (laughs) We should really step it up in all, like, avenues of our social media dominance. Well, until then, we will see you later. And we are Frogflix. Bye! Bye!